Chapter 11, Part 1 of The Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Charles McHugh. The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni. Chapter 11, Part 1. As a pack of hounds, after in vain tracking a hare, return desponding to their master with heads hung down and drooping tails so on this disastrous night did the bravos return to the palace of don rodrigo he was listlessly pacing to and fro in an unoccupied room upstairs that overlooked the terrace now and then he would stop to listen or to peep through the chinks in the decayed window frames full of impatience and not entirely free from disquietude not only for the doubtfulness of success, but also for the possible consequences of the enterprise, this being the boldest and most hazardous in which our valiant cavalier had ever engaged. He endeavored, however, to reassure himself with the thought of the precautions he had taken, that not a trace of the perpetrator should be left. As to suspicions, I care nothing for them. I should like to know who would be inclined to come hither to ascertain if there be a young girl here or not let him dare to come the rash fool and he shall be well received let the friar come if he pleases the old woman she shall be off to bergamo justice pooh justice the podesta is neither a child nor a fool and at milan who will care for these people at milan who will listen to them who knows even what they are? They are like lost people in the world. They haven't even a master. They belong to no one. Come, come, never fear. How Attilio will be silenced tomorrow. You shall see whether I am a man to talk and boast. And then, if any difficulty should ensue, what do I know? Any enemy who would seize this occasion, Attilio will be able to advise me. He is pledged to it for the honor of the whole family. But the idea on which he dwelt most, because he found it both a soother of his doubts and a nourisher of his predominating passion, was the thought of the flatteries and promises he would employ to gain over Lucia. She will be so terrified at finding herself here alone in the midst of these faces that, in troth, mine is the most human among them, that she will look to me, will throw herself upon her knees to pray, and if she prays, while indulging in these fine anticipations, he hears a footstep, goes to the window, opens it a little, and peeps through. It is they, and the litter. Where is the litter? Three, five, eight. They are all there. There's Grizo, too. The litter's not there. Grizo shall give me an account of this. When they reached the house, Grizo deposited his staff, cap, and pilgrim's habit in a corner of the ground-floor apartment and, as if carrying a burden which no one at the moment envied him, ascertained to render his account to Don Rodrigo. He was waiting for him at the head of the stairs, and on his approaching with the foolish and awkward air of a deluded villain, Well, said, or rather vociferated he, Signor Boster, Signor Capitan, Signor, leave it to me. It is hard, replied Grizo, resting one foot on the top step. 
it is hard to be greeted with reproaches after having labored faithfully and endeavored to do one's duty at the risk of one's life. How is it gone? Let us hear, let us hear, said Don Rodrigo, and, turning towards his room, Grizzo followed him, and briefly related how he had arranged what he had done, seen and not seen, heard, feared, and retrieved, relating it with that order and that confusion, that dubiousness and that astonishment which must necessarily have together taken possession of his ideas. You are not to blame, and have done your best, said Don Rodrigo. You have done what you could, but, but if under this roof there be a spy, if there be, if I succeed in discovering him, and you may rest assured I'll discover him if he's here, I'll settle matters with him. I promise you, Grizo, I'll pay him as he deserves. The same suspicion, Signor, replied he, has crossed my mind, and if it be true, and we discover a villain of this sort, my master should put it into my hands. One who has diverted himself by making me pass such a night as this, it is my business to pay him for it. However, all things considered, it seems likely there may have been some other cross purposes, which now we cannot fathom. Tomorrow, Signor, tomorrow we shall be in clear water. Do you think you have been recognized? Grizo replied that he hoped not, and the conclusion of the interview was that Don Rodrigo ordered him to do three things next day, which he would have thought of well enough by himself. One was to dispatch two men, in good time in the morning, to the constable with the intimation, which we have already noticed, two others to the old house to ramble about, and keep at a proper distance any loiterer who might happen to come there, and to conceal the litter from every eye till nightfall, when they would send to fetch it, since it would not do to excite suspicion by any further measures at present, and lastly to go himself on a tour of discovery and dispatch several others of the most dexterity and good sense on the same errand that he might learn something of the causes and issue of the confusion of the night. Having given these orders, Don Rodrigo retired to bed, leaving Grizo to follow his example, bidding him good night and loading him with praises, through which appeared an evident desire to make some atonement, and in a manner to apologize for the precipitate haste with which he had reproached him on his arrival. Go, take some rest, poor Grizo, for thou must surely need it. Poor Grizo, laboring hard all day, laboring hard half the night, without counting the danger of falling into the hands of villains, or of having a price set upon thy head for the seizure of an honest woman, in addition to those already laid upon thee, and then to be received in this manner. But thus men often reward their fellows. Thou mightiest, nevertheless, see in this instance that sometimes people judge according to merit, and that matters are adjusted even in this world. Go rest a while, for some day thou mayest be called upon to give another and more considerable proof of thy faithfulness. Next morning Grizo was again surrounded with business on all hands when Don Rodrigo rose. This nobleman quickly sought Count Attilio who, the moment he saw him approach, called out to him with a look and gesture of raillery, St. Martin. 
I have nothing to say, replied Don Rodrigo, as he drew near. I will pay the wager. But it is not this that vexes me most. I told you nothing about it, because I confess I thought to surprise you this morning. But stay, I will tell you all. That friar has a hand in this business, said his cousin, after having listened to the account with suspense and wonderment, and with more seriousness than could have been expected from a man of his temperament. I always thought that friar, with his dissembling and out-of-the-way answers, was a knave and a hypocrite. And you never opened yourself to me. You never told me plainly what happened to entertain you the other day. Don Rodrigo related the conversation. And did you submit to that? exclaimed Count Attilio. Did you let him go away as he came? Would you have me draw upon myself all the capuchins of Italy? I don't know, said Attilio, whether I should have remembered at that moment that there was another capuchin in the world except this daring knave, but surely, even under the rules of prudence, there must be some way of getting satisfaction, even on a capuchin. We must manage to redouble civilities cleverly to the whole body, and then we can give a blow to one member with impunity. However, the fellow has escaped the punishment he best deserved, but I'll take him under my protection, and have the gratification of teaching him how to talk to gentlemen such as we are. Don't make matters worse for me. Trust me for once, and I'll serve you like a relation and a friend. What do you intend to do? I don't know yet, but rest assured I'll pay off the friar. I'll think about it, and my uncle the Signor Count of the Privy Council will be the man to help me. Dear Uncle Count, how fine it is when I can make a politician of his stamp do all my work for me. The day after tomorrow I shall be at Milan, and in one way or other the friar shall be rewarded. In the meanwhile breakfast was announced, which, however, made no interruption in the discussion of an affair of so much importance. Count Attilio talked about it freely, and though he took that side which his friendship to his cousin and the honor of his name required according to his ideas of friendship and honor, yet he could not help occasionally finding something to laugh at in the ill success of his relative and friend. But Don Rodrigo, who felt it was his own cause, and who had so signally failed when hoping quietly to strike a great blow, was agitated by stronger passions, and distracted by more vexatious thoughts. Fine talk, said he, these radicals will make in the neighborhood. But what do I care? As to justice, I laugh at it. There is no proof against me, and even if there were, I should care for it just as little. The constable was warned this morning to take good heed, at the risk of his life, that he makes no deposition of what has happened. Nothing will follow from it, but gossiping, when carried to any length, is very annoying to me. It's quite enough that I have been bullied so unmercifully. You did quite rightly, replied Count Attilio. Your Podesta, an obstinate, empty-pated, prosing fellow, that Podesta is nevertheless a gentleman, a man who knows his duty. And it is just when we have to do with such people that we must take care not to bring them into difficulties. If that rascal of a constable should make a deposition, the Podesta, however, well-intentioned, would be obliged. But you, interrupted Don Rodrigo with some warmth, 
you spoil all my affairs by contradicting him in everything by silencing him and laughing at him on every occasion why cannot a potista be an obstinate fool when at the same time he is a gentleman do you know cousin said Contatilio, glancing towards him a look of raillery and surprise do you know that i begin to think you are half afraid in earnest you may rest assured that the potista well well didn't you yourself say that we must be careful i did and when it is a serious matter i'll let you see that i am not a child do you know all that i have courage to do for you i'm ready to go in person to this signor podesta how proud he will be of the honor and i am ready moreover to let him talk for half an hour about the count duke and the spanish signor the governor of the castle and to give an ear to everything, even when he talks so mightily about these people. Then I will throw in a few words about my uncle, the Signor Count of the Privy Council, and you will see what effect these words in the ear of the Signor Podesta will produce. After all, he has more need of our protection than you of his condescension. I will do my best, and will go to him and leave him better disposed towards you than ever. After these and a few similar words, Count Attilio set off on his expedition, and Don Rodrigo remained awaiting with anxiety Grizo's return. Towards dinner-time he made his appearance, and reported the success of his reconnoitering tour. The tumult of the preceding night had been so clamorous, the disappearance of three persons from a village was so strange an occurrence, that the inquiries, both from interest and curiosity, would naturally be many, eager and persevering, and, on the other hand, those who knew something were too numerous to agree in maintaining silence on the matter. Perpetua could not set foot out of doors without being assailed by one or another to know what it was that had so alarmed her master, and she herself reviewing and comparing all the circumstances of the case and perceiving how she had been imposed upon by agnese felt so much indignation at the act of perfidy that she was ever ready to give vent to her feelings not that she complained to this or that person of the manner in which she was imposed upon on this subject she did not breathe a syllable but the trick played upon her poor master she could not altogether pass over in silence especially as such a trick had been concerted and attempted by that gentle creature, that good youth, and that worthy widow. Don Abandillo, indeed, might positively forbid her and earnestly entreat her to be silent, and she could easily enough reply that there was no need to urge upon her what was so clear and evident, but certain it is that such a secret in the poor woman's breast was very like new wine in an old and badly hooped cask which ferments and bubbles and boils and if it does not send the bung into the air works upon itself till it issues in froth and penetrates between the staves and oozes out in drops here and there so that one can taste it and almost decide what kind of wine it is gervaisa who could scarcely believe that for once he was better informed than his neighbors who thought it no little glory to have been a sharer in such a scene of terror, and who fancied himself a man like the others, from having lent a hand in an enterprise that bore the appearance of criminality. 
was dying to make a boast of it. And though Tonio, who thought with some dread of the inquiries, the possible processes and the account that would have to be rendered gave him many injunctions with his finger upon his lips, yet it was not possible to silence every word. Even Tonio himself, after having been absent from home that night at an unusual hour and returning with an unusual step and air and an excitement of mind that disposed him to candor, even he could not dissimulate the matter with his wife, and she was not dumb. The person who talked least was Menico, for no sooner had he related to his parents the history and the object of his expedition than it appeared to them so terrible a thing that their son had been employed in frustrating an undertaking of Don Rodrigo's, that they scarcely suffered the boy to finish his narration. They then gave him most strenuous and threatening orders to take good heed that he did not give the least hint of anything, and the next morning, not yet feeling sufficiently confident in him, they resolved to keep him shut up in the house for at least that day, and perhaps even longer. But what then? They themselves afterwards, in chatting with their neighbors, without wishing to show that they knew more than others, yet when they came to that mysterious point in the flight of the three fugitives, and the how and the why and the where added almost as a well-known thing, that they had fled to Pescarenico. Thus the circumstance also was generally noised abroad. With all these scraps of information put together and compared as usual, and with the embellishments naturally attached to such relations, there were grounds for a story of more certainty and clearness than common, and such as might have contented the most criticizing mind. But the invasion of the Bravos, an event too serious and notorious to be left out, and one on which nobody had any positive information, was what rendered this story dark and perplexing. The name of Don Rodrigo was whispered about, and so far all were agreed, but beyond everything was obscurity and dissension. Much was said about the two bravos who had been seen in the street towards evening, and of the other who had stood at the inn door. But what light could be drawn from this naked fact? They inquired of the landlord, who had been there the night before, but the landlord could not even remember that he had seen anybody that evening, and concluded his answer, as usual, with the remark that his inn was like a seaport. Above all, the pilgrim, seen by Stefano and Carlandrea, puzzled their heads and disarranged their conjectures. That pilgrim whom the robbers were murdering and who had gone away with them, or whom they had carried off. What could he be doing? He was a good spirit come to the aid of the women. He was the wicked spirit of a roguish pilgrim impostor, who always came by night to join such companions and perform such deeds, as he had been accustomed to when alive. He was a living and true pilgrim, whom they attempted to murder, because he was preparing to arouse the village. He was, just see what they went so far as to conjecture, one of these very villains, disguised as a pilgrim. Uh, he was this, he was that, he was so many things, that all the sagacity and experience of Grizzo 
would not have sufficed to discover who he was if he had been obliged to glean this part of the story from others. But as the reader knows, that which rendered it so perplexing to others was exactly the clearest point to him, and serving as a key to interpret the other notices, either gathered immediately by himself or through the medium of his subordinate spies. It enabled him to lay before Don Rodrigo a report sufficiently clear and connected. Closeted with him, he told him of the blow attempted by the poor lovers, which naturally accounted for his finding the house empty, and the ringing of the bell, without which they would have been obliged to suspect traitors, as these two worthy men expressed it, in the house. He told him of the flight, and for this, too, it was easy to find more than one reason. The fear of the lovers on being taken in a fault or some rumor of their invasion, when it was discovered and the village roused. Lastly, he told him that they had gone to Pescarenico, but further than this his knowledge did not extend. Don Rodrigo was pleased to be assured that no one had betrayed him, and to find that no traces remained of his enterprise. But it was a light and passing pleasure. Fled together, cried he, together, and that rascally friar, that friar! The word burst forth hoarsely from his throat, and half smothered between his teeth, as he bit his nails with vexation. His countenance was as brutal as his passion. That friar shall answer for it. Grisot, I am not myself. I must know. I must find out. This night I must know where they are. I have no peace. To Pescarenico directly. To know, to see, to find. Four crowns on the spot. And my protection forever. This night I must know. And that villain, that friar. Once more Grisot was in the field. And in the evening of that same day he could impart to his worthy patron the desired information and by this means. One of the greatest consolations of this world is friendship, and one of the pleasures of friendship is to have someone to whom we may entrust a secret. Now friends are not divided into pairs, as husband and wife. Everybody, generally speaking, has more than one, and this forms a chain of which no one can find the first link. When, then, a friend meets with an opportunity of depositing a secret in the breast of another, he, in his turn, seeks to share in the same pleasure. He is entreated, to be sure, to say nothing to anybody, and such a condition, if taken in the strict sense of the words, would immediately cut short the chain of these gratifications. But general practice has determined that it only forbids the entrusting of a secret to everybody but one equally confidential friend, imposing upon him, of course, the same conditions. Thus, from confidential friend to confidential friend, the secret threads its way along this immense chain until at last it reaches the ear of him or them whom the first speaker exactly intended it should never reach. However, it would, generally, have to be a long time on the way. If everybody had but two friends, the one who tells him 
and the one to whom he repeats it, with the injunction of silence. But some highly favored men there are, who reckon these blessings by the hundred, and when the secret comes into the hands of one of these, the circles multiply so rapidly that it is no longer possible to pursue them. End of chapter 11, part 1. Recording by Charles McHugh, Minneapolis, Minnesota.